You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. Hi, I am Charlie. I am in Bern. I am Firefire. I am John Armstrong and Jen Goodall. John lives in Mumbai. He is a S R V render. He has helped people. John has been work this is all and forty is John are good at being thing then is the hot the person more Jen has raise S R three and says it died work. He has helped people have their roles and would have body is John Jen. Oh, fantastic, Charlie. What a fantastic introduction. Thank you very much. So welcome, John, and I hope everyone's got their cup of tea. I do. So yeah, this is just going to be a bit of a conversation that John and I are going to have and draw on some of the stories that we've heard throughout the conference so far. So John, we've chosen this theme of shifting the yes faults and, and how being known can keep you safe. Um, so I suppose explaining what we mean by that in that, you know, often we hear people sort of coming up with an excuse why being fully embedded in community, there presents a problem with that. So we're trying to help people think that through. And that's something I'd like you to talk about, John, is around those, the mindset that might sit behind that and how people can navigate around that. Um, because we do know that by being known in the community and we've just followed from Hugh McKay's presentation about being connected in community, it does keep us safe. And it doesn't mean you have to be really good friends, but just being known so people can look out for you. That's right. And uh, we tend to like our mindsets. We get really comfortable in them. And I think we tend to think that the way we see the world is the way it really is. And the thing that seems to get us out of a tricky mindset, especially one that narrows the world somewhat, is that we contain blind spots, but they're blind spots we can't see. That's because we're blind to them. It's like, how do I get to see what I won't see? And it seems then that we have to sometimes feel the need for change that convinces us we need to readjust ourselves. 
uh, being given information is not enough, you know. So the idea of, you know, education will change people. They have to feel the need for it, not just think it. So we've got some examples here that we, we're going to show why this works, but to some extent, it's feeling the need for that change. And that's what convinces us, or might at least convince us, is that you feel something so compelling here, I have to do something about it. Knowledge itself is not enough. It's to have an emotional reaction to what you take in. Then I see the need to change that's, that's likely to challenge my mindset to the extent that I will now do something differently. And a number of our stories illustrate this as well. And I guess that with Stephanie's story here that Arosha beautifully shared yesterday was around that often it's pushing you, like if you do have that shift of mindset, you want something different. So Stephanie started off in an autism unit at school and the family wanted something different. They wanted her to be schooled with all the other kids at the local school but they were pushing against those fixed mindsets that actually she belongs over there. So there's that real dilemma and and building that sort of confidence that this is the right path was very difficult, but they pushed through and now they could see what was possible for Stephanie because she was presented with the opportunity. So what do you think about that, John? It's a wonderful story because quite often when we reach mindset, we only seek information that reinforces it. But here the family was open to receiving other information, even though the repercussions of that were unsettling, like changing from something that was in place. And in that sense, it can present a type of security to something that seemed perhaps less precise, but ended up producing a much greater result. And interesting, the whole family gets affected by this because Arosha was was mentioning how isolated not only was Sethmi, but so was she. And we find that from the studies as well, that statistically, that the more segregated and congregated a person is, there are several things here. One is that they tend to go on to lead a segregated, congregated life. So early segregation leads to lifelong segregation, typically. There will be exceptions. But also, the wider family are segregated as well. For instance, the families that would have gone to that first school, they would be from a very wide geographical area where the children are taken by bus. So they don't even get the chance to rub shoulders with the other parents dropping off their kids at school. There's not really even a school community. It's much tougher to form a school community under those conditions. So they end up as well not knowing many people and being rather isolated. So now that Sethmi is involved with a wider community, so are her parents. So early integration or inclusion tends to lead to a lifelong involvement in the lives of other people. And it also means that rather than an arrangement with Sethmi where she might be seen as a burden and therefore the family are victims of her presence, it means that as Sethmi gets valued roles, so do the family. And this is important for families to remember too, that if they have a son and daughter with a disability, don't give up your own valued roles because it's through your own valued roles being sustained that you see the possibilities for your son and daughter. If we surrender our valued roles and drift into almost a welfare position, then we might see that that's the only outcome that we can consider that it narrows the vision that we have for our sons and daughters as well. 
And I know it's difficult for some families where, especially with the educational system and, you know, pushing back. But what was interesting, which happened to um, Stephanie's family, but what they did was that they started looking for things outside of the school setting. And this could be very possible for other families that might be in a similar situation. And it followed that interest of dancing. And, and it took, you know, frequency and regularity in turning up. And it wasn't perfect to begin with. But she's now very much a part of that dance community. And that gave the family that confidence to then think, actually, she does belong in regular, ordinary life. She does not need to be placed over in a separate setting. So I think it's also about that building your own confidence that um, to be able to push against the, the strong mindsets out there around segregation. Yes, yes. Change occurs one small step at a time. And, and I think sometimes the, the change that it is in Applying seems too big and insurmountable. It can spook us a little bit, and we don't feel confident that we can then take that step. So sometimes breaking the steps down a little bit into something that's much more reasonable, like let's have a go at dancing and, and, and see what happens. And so many of our stories then show people looking for the opportunity, that, that idea of some of the change we're after we don't know what lies ahead, but we'll watch for it. That serendipity takes place. And Sue's story, both the, the lady that she's been an advocate for and her daughter indicated lots of, you know, there's lots of unknowns, but we're going to be watching. And sometimes because we're watching, we see all of the possibilities that then crop up, sometimes in a moment of meeting someone and seizing an opportunity, and that we can seize it because we're looking for it. Whereas if we think this is all there is, then we shut them to the door. And that's when we get the yes but, because we've already closed the door to other possibilities. Yeah, and I think when we were looking at these slides, we were both commenting on how confident Stephanie looks in this image and looking straight into the lens and there's a sense of confidence there, isn't it? Mm. And determination. And I think also what the school did beautifully with Sethley, um, when she started in her regular school was they just demystified any difference and pointed out the similarities that she has with the kids. And I think that's where it's quite important to not just leave it up to the assumptions of, of the peers or their parents and bring them along with really deeply getting to know Sethley, which I remember going to the school and some of the kids just watching how they were, how the friendship was growing and how they understood all of her vocalisations and what that meant and they weren't worried. It was just they knew Sethmi so well. It's interesting because there is this idea in the culture a lot about celebrating difference, you know, the whole diversity thing. And, and that's fine, but what brings us together and I wish Hugh was still on, I'm sure he'd agree with me, is that what, <laughs> what we have in common is what brings us together as people. And it enables that interpersonal identification that this person's like me more than she is different. And then we can celebrate the difference in a sense. Isn't she unique? And then people look at their own unique qualities. But what brings us together as communities with the groups that we hold together, whether they're political groups or cultural groups or sporting groups, is that we, we have a lot in common we're like each other, and therefore we have that compassion towards each other. 
you know, that uh, I see myself in this other person. Whereas if all I see is difference, uh, I might therefore see a, an alien or someone so different that I, I, I can't embrace them at all. And there's a tendency then to, to reject such people. And so dislocation and disintegration occurs within our communities, uh, a kind of tribalism that we define ourselves by defining who isn't like us. And we put energy into that rather than seeking things that we have together. And I so appreciated Hugh's comments about like just getting to know our neighbors. And, and we, we have many ethnic groups in our neighborhood, but getting to know them has just been wonderful. We even know their names now through COVID. And we're sharing dishes and I'm a beekeeper. I'm giving away honey. And it's just led to all of this reciprocity. And we're placing our sons and daughters in a similar situation where where reciprocity, you know, that kindness, then we can initiate that. And it enables the person to give the other people to give back. And there's an interesting effect here that's been shown through some of the social science that when we do something good to another person, we feel more favorable towards them. In fact, we increase their status in our eyes. If we devalue someone, we tend to denigrate their status. If we treat them well, we elevate their status. So we're placing people in a situation, inviting other people to do good things. And it generates this feedback loop uh, of, of increasing opportunity rather than the other way of decreasing opportunity and disadvantage. We're accumulating advantage. And like what's ahead for Seth me, we feel really optimistic about that. For everyone that we've taught, heard stories of, there's still doors to be open, but there's no reason to be optimistic about what their lives, uh, were, what they'll be facing in the future. Absolutely. Move on to Jack's image here. Uh, and something I wanted to come back to, and we didn't probably necessarily talk about it in his presentation, but given Jack is my son and I have his permission, we thought we'd sort of just talk about when he was quite young, He's a very curious young man, and or young boy, I should say. He's a man now, but when he was young, he's very curious and would often take him off on his own adventure that we weren't always aware of. So we could have easily have just locked him in, which we did to a point with, you know, called locking the front door. Um, I think we do that anyway. But we also knew that we had to teach him the skills and give him the, the competencies around crossing the road safely because it was going to happen anyway. And we needed to give him lots of opportunities. And I remember when he first started school, and I hear this a lot these days from families that are after the school with that's fully sensed. Under this, I almost think a false security that it's actually going to keep the child safe. When in fact, I always try and remind people that there's always a gate. Where there's a fence, there's a gate. And usually people can work out how to find the gate and get through the gate. So we're better off skilling kids up, but also thinking about how do we keep a young person engaged if it's in a school setting, engaged in the learning. And if they're disengaging, where's a safe place they can go to where we know we're going to be able to find them? So it could be the library. It could be the internal playground. It could be the, the reception area at the school. So they were just sort of some strategies that we use when he was young and curious. And we don't want to stamp out that curiosity. I think that actually um, can take a person well through their lives. So 
I don't know whether I want to sort of add anything to that, but it's around that being known is keeping people safe. And I've got another story once you've given a reflection on that. Yeah, because strangers, we, we're only left with ideas that we ascribe to the stranger because we don't really know them. And, and of course, stereotypes exist about strangers. And for people with disabilities, there are stereotypes that are sitting there waiting for confirmation. And sometimes we see that in certain services where we see people being treated in ways that's confirming of those ideas. And so the public, the observers, think I was right to see people that way. Look, the experts are treating them that way as well. But in your example, we've got an interaction then with, with a, a school, a wider school community, and being known becomes then a safeguard to that. And so rather than a stranger or an alien, it, it's through knowing people. And there's a degree then of contacts and interactions, and out of that comes some relationships. And it's through those relationships then we have a natural tendency to do things for each other. I like your example, though. Of, I think all the kids probably need some safe places to go at school sometimes. I had a teacher friend years ago in a small school down in East Gippsland, and he kept an old bathtub at the back of the classroom. And if any of the kids fell down of sorts, they could always go into the bathtub and it was known that no one was to interfere with anyone who was in a bathtub. It was their time out, leave them alone, don't bug them, until one day the inspector came and wanted to see the teacher, and the kid said, well, you can't see right now, so he's in the bathtub. And so the teacher had put himself in there as well. And um, <laughs> it's quite a funny story. But <laughs> And um, so there's there's points of safety and uh, and 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 knowing each other. So, and, and what's interesting about that is that it's the commitment we make to each other that hasn't been coerced through payment. So it turns out that paid arrangements don't protect people nearly as well as we, we often think, because in a way, the paid person is also responding to those who pay them. And that means the person they're supporting is not always at the center of their concern. In unpaid relationships, though, we've got no interference with how we see the person. We're not being bought so to speak, by another entity that has a, a stake in how we conduct ourselves. I'm free, so to speak. The relationship is free. It's, it's not just free monetarily, it's free to act. And there's nothing to constrain that action. And so that we find it's through the freely given relationships that people form, including work colleagues. Um, they might be paid, but they're not paid to relate in that same direct way. And, and therefore, now, now we're truly protected. Well, at least we have a greater chance of being protected in circumstances where there are freely given relationships. If people are alone and isolated and only surrounded by paid people, though, they're in a really serious situation. And again, Sue's story of the lady that uh, she's been an advocate for, and that's why advocacy is powerful because they can act independently. They've, they've not been traded off to, to say or do certain things already by another party. They're free to take whatever action is necessary, and that brings potency then to what it is they might need to do and to step out and say, you can't do that to my friend. And so friendship tends to also strengthen that advocacy as well, that protection, um, because I identify with them and I'm not going to let anything come that harms them in any way. Yeah, and I think that that's where you know, bringing together those freely given relationships which Jack shared around his circle of support 
but just simply by going to local schools and, you know, eventually riding to school. You know, I would often hear from people, oh, yeah, I saw Jack on his bike this morning or like they're just looking out because he's known and it's kept him safe on, on many occasions. So I think looking for those safeguards and you could be potentially using some paid support to nurture those freely given relationships. And if you want to know how to do that, you can listen to Janet Clee's sessions. But your example too illustrates that that Jack's routine sometimes becomes the routine of others, that his neighbourly presence in a fairly frequent way and frequency is a part of this as well, being there frequently, being seen frequently, not once every six months that we get to go to that place, but it's, it's frequent and common and that other people then identify with the person that becomes part of their schedule and their sense of a community presence, that I know Jack, and he's keeping an eye on me as well. And and so that's the true nature of reciprocity. It's been said that any relationship that isn't reciprocal won't last. And we've also heard a theme of contribution, that people with disabilities are placed into roles where they get to contribute to the lives of others. Hugh McKay has written about that in his book, that probably the strongest feature of the good things of life is the chance to contribute to the lives of others. It, it just gives us such a sense of meaning and purpose, not to be underestimated. I'll just let you know, though, like when Jack started Year 11 and 12 at a college, he had to cross one of the biggest roads um, in Canberra where they just brought in the light rail. So it could have been really easy for us to go too dangerous not doing it because, of course, the lights are all different and it was very new. But we put some measures in place and some safeguards around that to ensure that he didn't get run over by a tram. But also, as you mentioned, that regularity of friends coming from one area, passing him on the bike path, they're often looking out for him. So the importance of living locally and being known is a huge safeguard. So this is Jacob, and we heard his story in the very beginning of the conference. He's tried many work roles throughout his school, and this was all driven by the vision of his family. And it could have been easy for them to think, you know, how could he possibly work on the cashier when communication is a real challenge for him? But when you heard about that mastery of being the cashier and that practice, and now he's actually the fastest cashier and so people have a preference to go through his counter um, other than other cashiers at Woolworths and very much missed when he's not there. So that whole perception of how the community is seeing Jacob in that role is very powerful. There's um, some lovely aspects to reflect on in Jacob's story. His ability is many people can do things uh, on a repeated basis and to become masterful at it as well. An interesting aspect that I saw in Jacob, and, and to a degree in everybody, is a, a thing that's it's often called a competency payload. And it's, and it's interesting because one of the things we see for people with intellectual disabilities sometimes is, is the heart qualities have been allowed and supported to, to be nourished. And so aspects of agreeableness and the conscientiousness that Jacob brings and all of our stories bring um, are very positive aspects. And when we see that, there's a, there's a tendency to ascribe more competencies to the person than may currently exist. 
So that is, we believe the person to be competent because of the image of competency that's presented to us. And therefore, we create opportunities for them where they, they can actually grow into it. And so here he is now the fastest checkout operator because there was something about what we saw about him. And, and you notice the eagerness of some of the other staff to support Jacob and replace the need for a support worker to provide that support. So there was an, even an eagerness they identified with his role. They knew the role really well, so that in-job support worked really well for him. And just their comments about how helpful he is, how he loves the job. He doesn't even want to go home when the shift is finished. Now, I haven't met too many of those people at Woolies, but Jacob does that, you know. So so much of it, he's grabbed this role with both hands. And that's interesting. He's grabbed the good things of life. He himself has gone after that. He's such a great example of that competency halo, which means it's the way other people see him, what's going on in their minds about who he is, and that they've ascribed certain qualities to him, especially around agreeableness, conscientiousness, and therefore they've offered him other capacities to grow into and become competent because they had to believe he could do that in order to give that to him. And so that's that competency halo. They believed that he was more competent than he currently demonstrated, and therefore he became what they believed of him. It's just fabulous. And now the essential worker. That's right. Mm. So here we have PR who finished our day off yesterday with you following, John, but just talking about her fashion business that she started a number of years ago. And and it was an interesting story getting the reflection of the family, not fully believing that this was going to be possible for Tia to take up. And what I loved about her presentation was just how she described how she's involved in every aspect of it. But it's not always done in the way that we would think it's going to be performed. So, but she's still very much overseeing the whole business and has a very detailed life worth, you know, making sure it's being presented the way she does. So it's a great story. It is indeed a great story. As we say, throng little roles, big roles grow. Kind of reminds me of a song. Um, and we see that, you know, starting out with an Instagram account and, and, looking at, at the design and then translating this into an opportunity. And what's very clear in Tia's story is what we call person role match. Like, this is her role. This is where she belongs. And also the, the potential for what we call role cascading, that, that idea that, you know, once you obtain a role, it opens the door to other roles. And sometimes we don't always predict that that'll be the case. We hope for it, but then we see it. And it's like other roles start to present themselves. And and there was such detail in what they're doing too. They really melted down the discrete features of this business that they have. It's a serious business. And you have to get things right. And they're using Tia's talents and continuing to stretch and expand those talents within each of the subcategories involved in this fashion industry that she's a part of right down to, you know, how the models model and that the Tia is at the center of that. It's not like, oh, we do all this stuff around Tia and we just have her as a showpiece. So no, she is, this is her stuff and, and nothing gets through that she hasn't been, as a word, developed 
and uh, and approved of. So we call that salience in role theory, that this role has salience for her. Salience means that it brings meaning and purpose. It's the role she wants. So it's not like you have to give her food rewards to get her to go to work or something. Like this is where she wants to be. It is intrinsically reinforcing to her. And many of our stories have that, this match between who the person is and what the role is they're going for. They're not being asked to do something that's foreign or alien to who they are. And so they, they then grab it and it's, it's highly motivating. You can hardly hold the person back when you find these right roles. And that's true for all of us. We've all been in jobs we didn't really want. We used them as a pathway to the thing that we did want. And, and sometimes people never find the job that they really want. It's just, you know, they get into other roles after work. You know, that's the life they want. That's where their loved roles are, their most salient roles. Work is just a place where you earn your money and pay your mortgage. You know, so there's a lot of work like that in the world, but there are other roles that we seek that really speak to our heart and what we really like. And, and so the carefulness that they've demonstrated in this match and then opening up every single feature, you know, the design work, the drawing of the designs and even the ironing that she does is not her favorite aspect, <laughs> but you know, that has to be done though. That's part of the deal. And, uh, I love seeing that. Lovely lesson. Yeah, and the fact, you know, just thriving in that business now. And she is saving up for her own. So, you know, the, the dreams just continue. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> point, is that people do get more future-oriented. When there are a few roles in your life, you're just going from day to day. It's like, well, what next exciting thing might occur today? Eating at Macca's, you know, like there's nothing to look forward to. But when you get a valued role, you start to get longer, deeper possibilities, which is interesting for some people who have a struggle with the future, like when is six months? All of that. Well, people start to start out because they have long-term dreams and hopes. And I'm saving up to go to New Zealand. You know, those sorts of dreams start to occur to people. It's just great. And so now our final person we're going to be reflecting on is Katie. And so Katie actually made a presence today in Sue's other presentation talking about Susan. So it was great to see her on the screen in her own home. Katie's been living in her own home for 13 years now and Sue sort of described the journey that they took and had they listened to what professionals around them were saying that she needed this two-to-one support, I mean, how they kind of shifted their mindset to stay, or not shifted, stick to their mindset that, no, this is going to be possible to Katie. And that fantastic story of um, Katie having her first night in her own home on her own, unintentionally, <laughs> because both parents thought they'd organised it. But when we turned up in the next morning, she'd got dressed herself, she'd made her own breakfast. And she'd never shown she could do that before. And then when Sue was then talking about how they're doing that stretching of leaving her on her own in between when paid support turn up, and that's when they really see her potential in those spaces. And it's, I guess it's a reminder to all of us is to make sure we offer people those opportunities so we can see their potential to grow. Absolutely, Chan. I think we all, as, as parents, we, we can get our expectations of our children. And, and sometimes there's a little discovery. Say, she can do that. 
she can, I never realized she could do that. You know, it's like we, we feel like we know our kids really well, but I wonder that we sometimes, uh, we surround them with protections and cotton wool them. And we do underestimate sometimes. And then to discover what Katie can do. And it's not that Katie doesn't have needs and, and support needs in various ways, but so much more capable. And sometimes we don't see what people are capable of until the opportunity presents itself. And invariably, we are surprised and amazed that I didn't know that she could do that because we've not let people experience an opportunity where, you know, that in our overprotection, perhaps we've, we've limited the chance to grow and learn. And you can't grow and learn without a degree of risk. That's the dignity of risk. It's the degree of risk with which we think the person can achieve that. But sometimes we underestimate what the person can achieve and they surprise us. And we should take real big notice of what that surprise is. The features I love in the story too is that of how a neighborhood, by and large, I mean, there are a few people that didn't like it taking their bins. They are the best lined up bins I have ever seen. <laughs> and they're certainly better than our street. And uh, that idea of that people will treat someone according to what's in their mind about this person. And so Katie's role as a homeowner here, is a role that's potent uh, and uh, being a homemaker is a very big and complex role and that the role speaks louder than an impairment in shaping the mind of an observer and that in reacting to the role they saw, they embraced Katie, conversations with Katie, you know, and, and yet there'd be other professionals who say, well, you can't hold a conversation with Katie. He's not capable of that. And here they are expecting that from Katie and in a sense being reciprocal in a relationship based on the role they see her in. And so again, we see then a competency halo for Katie as well, being placed in a position where she gets to demonstrate her role and appear this competent and and then she gets to live up to that. So interesting cycle here between what we believe a person is like and then how we will then treat them and then how will they respond to that treatment we then react to? So it's kind of the feedback. In fact, we have an overhead in our workshops and there's just arrows going everywhere <laughs> that demonstrate this little feedback. And here we've had examples that have taught us that very thing. It's been quite wonderful. No, she, she certainly has got some amazing stories um, of growth over the years and and also when things didn't go well, it wasn't the end of that, you know, experience of living in her own home. And that's what I sort of think we can learn a lot from people like Katie, where, if, you know, Sue mentioned the fire. It wasn't the end of her living in her own home. It was just a lesson and learn from it and move on. So we might just go to our final slide because sometimes we can be talking about these ideas, but people may find it still difficult about how do I take that first step. And I always love to use this analogy that was introduced to me by Lorna Sullivan around thinking like water, dream big. And the idea of uh, water is that if you know where you're going, it will always find its way. There's often obstacles in the way. So you can see here in this image, you've got waterfalls, you're contending with, you've got rocks. But you do have some smooth times, which I think that's where we catch our breath. But I just think it's it's really good to remember that, yes, there will be obstacles in your way, but to dream big in the first instance. Because if we don't know where we're going, we're never going to get there. 
and you can always lean on someone. So that could be the bridge um, analogy here for that support to get you over those rocky torrents. So it's just a nice image to finish with today. It's a wonderful image, Jan. Being a canoeist in my past and the, the lovely stretches of water that are calm and beautiful before you hit the rapids. And, uh, and then you use all your techniques as you have to adjust your course to get through. It's a lovely analogy, but it means that you don't give up and you don't get out and, uh, and you throw your hands in the air, you stay the course. And it's your vision that holds you to that. And, and of course, your, your devotion that the good things of life are really worth fighting for. And so that you pursue it at all cost and you're not defeated by barriers that present themselves suddenly. And sometimes you'll make mistakes as well, but it's the learning from the mistakes that are just gold. So don't even be afraid of that very much, you know, because now we've learned something and that's going to be really valuable for what's ahead. Thank you for the opportunity of asking me to to comment about these wonderful lives of uh, these young people we've been seeing, Jane, today. It was lovely to have a conversation with you, so we hope everyone's enjoyed it. You've been listening to an Imagine More podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content.